to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. I'm Caroline Bommel from Tufts Medical Center, New England Eye Center in Boston. And I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues, Ali Khan from Wills Eye Hospital and Mid-Atlantic Retina in Philadelphia. Hey, everybody. Vlad Matai from Rocky Mountain Retina Associates in Boulder. Hello, everybody. And Christina Wang from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Hello, thanks for having me. Tonight, we're gonna to be discussing two papers. The first one is titled Immune Complement and Coagulation Dysfunction in Adverse Outcomes of SARS-CoV-2 Infection by Ram Ramlal et al, published in Nature Medicine, October, 2020. Vlad, why don't you summarize this medical paper for us and tell us how it may be relevant to ophthalmology. Sure. So uh, this was a paper where the authors described three separate but related studies which they conducted during the height of the COVID pandemic. The first one was a retrospective chart review, and that's the one that's most relevant for us. And the other two are more genetic studies, uh, more molecular analyses. So the background for this is that uh, prior studies have shown to coronaviruses to have uh, um, increased activity in the complement and coagulation pathways in COVID and the, the coronavirus-infected patients. And the authors wanted to shed some more light on this. Separately, patients with AMD um, have been shown um, at the basic science level to have complement dysregulation in their pathogenesis. So the authors conducted a retrospective cohort studies of all patients presenting suspected of COVID to Columbia University Medical Center between February through April of 2020. And they looked at the primary outcomes of mechanical ventilation or mortality. And they looked at risk factors affecting these outcomes. So in particular, they looked at the history of hypertension, diabetes, coronary disease, obesity, as well as age and sex, plus two new risk factors, a history of age-related macular degeneration, which they used as a surrogate marker for complement dysfunction, and a history of coagulopathy, which they define as a history of hemorrhage, thrombosis, or thrombocytopenia. There were over 11,000 patients which presented with a COVID diagnosis uh, during that time, and over 6,000 had uh, a positive test confirming COVID. And out of all those patients, um, they found that all those risk factors except for smoking status was associated with uh, a worse outcome. So higher chance of mechanical ventilation or mortality. Um, in particular, AMD and the history of coagulopathy were associated with poor outcomes independent of age and sex. So this was an interesting uh, study where they found this association, but of course could not prove causality. They did note that there was a weak correlation between AMD and coagulopathy and the other risk factors, um, but this was more hypothesis generating. That is a great summary for a very complex paper, but it brings up an important point about complement and AMD. Can AMD be used as a surrogate for having complement dysfunction. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the discussion because complement is a hot topic for all of us who treat retina diseases. 
The next paper is going to be summarized by my friend Christina Wang, and this is a paper entitled Extended Intervals for Wet AMD Patients with High Retreatment Needs, Informing the Risk During COVID-19 Data from Real-World Evidence, and this is from Kelvin Tao, in, uh, published in November 2020 in I. Take it away, Christina. Thank you, Caroline. So this is an interesting study. The senior author on this paper was Jemmy Chung, and it helps to answer an interesting question about what happens if you force treatment interval extensions in neovascular AMD patients who require frequent treatment. And what was interesting was the timing of this paper. So they did this analysis at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic with the prediction that many patients would not feel comfortable or wouldn't be able to come in for their anti-VEGF injection appointments. And the authors were curious as to whether and how long of a treatment interval extension could be tolerated amongst patients who needed treatment at least every six weeks. So it's a database study. The analysis was performed on data from the Fight Retinal Blindness Registry, which includes patients from Australia, New Zealand, Singapore and Switzerland, and they took eyes that had already received three loading injections and needed treatment at least every six weeks subsequently. And more specifically, they took a very important point called the index visit, which was defined as the first visit after a six-week interval where disease activity was detected. And they were curious as to what would happen six months after the index visit from a visual acuity standpoint. So after the index visit, patients were divided into four different groups. Those were the, that were treated at a mean interval of six or fewer weeks, which I'll call group one. Those that were treated between every seven and nine weeks, which I'll call group two. Those that were treated every 10 to 12 weeks, which is group three. And those that had interval um, of greater than 12 weeks between treatments over the next six months. So the primary outcome, as I mentioned, was the visual acuity change from the index visit at six months post that index visit. And they looked at a variety of different secondary outcomes as well. The study included nearly 1,600 eyes. Over 80% of them were in group one, and they were well balanced in terms of baseline visual acuity, lesion type, and specific anti-VEGF drug used. So what did they find? They found that the mean change in visual acuity six months after the index visit was similar between groups one, two, and three, but worse in the group four, which was the group that was extended to beyond 12-week intervals. And they, more specifically, when they compared groups one and four, they found that patients in group four lost significantly more letters, about 2.6 letters versus a gain of 0.5 compared to group one. And additionally, significantly more eyes in the group that was treated at greater than 12-week intervals lost more than five, 10, or 15 letters compared with those that were treated every six weeks or even more frequently. For example, 14% of those in the 12-plus week interval group lost 15 letters, while only 4% of those treated every six weeks or fewer did. They also looked at disease activity outcomes, and that was a little bit funny because they looked at the proportion of visits where there was disease activity and found that that percentage was 72, 81, 85, and 70 in the four groups. So it didn't quite make sense with group four being lower. They looked at the number of visits that were needed over six months. And of course, as expected, those that were treated less frequently had fewer visits with the median number of visits being seven, six, four, and four in groups one to four. And finally, they looked at 12 month visual acuity outcomes. There was no significant difference in visual acuity change between any of the groups at that time point peculiarly. 
So in summary, the study suggests that extending beyond every 12 weeks in patients with a high treatment need may lead to worse visual acuity outcomes at six months, but perhaps short-term extension to every seven to 12 weeks might be tolerated for a short period of time while allowing for a lower treatment and visit burden. While the 12-month results seem to suggest that whatever vision is lost may be recoverable, I'd be hesitant to conclude that because the investigators didn't look at what approach was taken beyond the six-month time point. So Caroline and, and Vlad and, and Ali, I think this was an interesting paper because I'm sure we all agree that regular treatment dictated by the patient's response is ideal, but we all know that in the real world, there can be unplanned treatment interval extensions, whether it's due to COVID-19 or otherwise. So I think it's important to better understand what happens under those circumstances. That is a great summary of a very complex paper that looked at a lot of different issues and then really generalize some of those issues to what's going on in the current world, like how do we deal with patients and physicians who can't see patients that might have high treatment needs. So I'm Caroline Baumel for New Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and delve into these papers with more detail with my panel. Hi, I'm Caroline Bommel. We're back from the break with Vlad Matai, Ali Khan, and Christina Wang, my panelists. Let's start with Vlad because he presented this really interesting paper that pulls in complements and how it relates to COVID. Vlad, how can we relate complement to what's going on in the retina? Well, um, complement uh, dysregulation or even just activation has been implicated in the pathogenesis of age-related macular degeneration. But I think in this particular paper that I presented, the authors uh, only had uh, the, the typical hospital electronic medical record to work with. And so they didn't really have a very specific complement dysfunction related marker. So I think, I suspect that they used AMD not as the optical uh, optimal marker, but as the uh, just the, what was available to them in this uh, scenario. And the other thing is that the other risk factors for worse outcomes in COVID, including coronary disease and hypertension, um, have also been related to a higher chance of getting AMD, uh, just as, as cardiovascular disease in general. Great. I think that complement is not just something that is in the eye related to AMD, but is a systemic issue that can be related to other diseases. For example, we know that patients with complement mediated renal disease have subdrusenoid deposits. So I think it's important for us to understand the pathway. Ali, complements being really evaluated for treatment of intermediate AMD in some cases and geographic atrophy. Do you have any insight into where you think the complement pathway will play a role in our future treatments? I mean, obviously it's a, a hot uh, area of research. I know we've had some disappointments in some phase three trials and, uh, you know, hoping some of the, the current ones will, will pan out the way that we want to, but, you know, geographic atrophy, dry MD is still an unmet clinical need. So if complement uh, has promise, I think we got to see what the trials show. Um, you know, I've always felt inflammatory pathways were 
seemingly easy to understand, but very difficult to understand how they actually work in a body. So I think um, just like uh, the, the summary Vlad gave, it's hard to make, you know, direct connection between, you know, AMD and complement dysregulation and, and dysfunction. But um, we're, I think we're all hopeful that uh, one of these drugs will work out. You know, one thing I found interesting when I was reading Vlad's paper is I went to do a little bit of digging because obviously I don't have an area of expertise in infectious diseases and COVID-19, but they just published in Lancet the first randomized controlled clinical trial studying a complement pathway inhibitor for severe COVID-19 patients. And it was a big deal in that field, obviously. But interestingly enough, when I sort of went down the rabbit hole in the field of infectious diseases and rheumatology right now, the inhibitors that they're looking at in the pathway are the same ones we're looking at for GA. So, and I know you're very involved, Caroline, with a lot of the trials with Pegcetacoplin and Avis and Captid, but they're looking also at C3 inhibitors, C5 inhibitors, C5A inhibitors, and even C1 esterase inhibitors, which are in the classical pathway. So it's interesting to remember that this complement cascade and all of the pathways that sort of converge together all play a very intricate role in many disease states and in many different systems all of all in our body and you know obviously our minds go to geographic atrophy right away but it's actually in probably more diseases than we could ever imagine that's right so c3 recently uh, c3 and in, uh, inhibitors recently got approved for pnh which is another renal disorder and i think uh, as we kind of led the anti-vegf train we are really ahead on the curve when it comes to complement for the retina, and this might be stuff that we can use for systemic diseases as well. So let's move along to Christina's paper. Um, it's interesting that we're going to have a lot of data either related to COVID or generalizable to COVID, and uh, Christina's paper was not based on data during COVID, but it was based on data before the pandemic to look at what would happen if patients were extended longer, or you can generalize to missing visits, what would happen to their eye findings? Um, Ali, how did you find this happen? What happened with your patients during the pandemic? Did you find that patients did miss visits? Did it appear to you that patients were maintaining their vision or did patients have worsening of the vision? And I know that Wills has published some data on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh you know, kind of looking at a loss to follow-up kind of question for whatever reason there is loss to follow-up. Um, I think, you know, personally, our practice, uh, I feel like a lot of our AMD patients in particular have kept coming in and for the most part followed um, their treatment protocol with, with, you know, few and far between, you know, being gone for more than a few months, but uh, I've been consistently surprised, you know, some patients who have been missing for 10, 12 weeks, they actually look good. Their, their swelling's not that worse, their vision's the same, and then others, you know, fall off a cliff. So I think it's hard to predict who will and who, who won't. So I think uh, we're all hoping to keep people as close to their recommended interval as possible, but, um, you know, understandably people are going to miss for whatever the reason is. And, you know, this paper gives us some, uh, you know, guidance that maybe the vision can be preserved, but that 12 week mark, I think, I think most of us would agree, does make sense that, you know, after 12 weeks, we, 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 we really are losing vision and our phase three trial data kind of reflects that, but uh, maybe we get lucky somewhere in between. So uh, try our best not to make it intentional, but uh, if it does happen, these are some of the, the expectations we might have. 
Vlad, are you surprised by the findings from the paper that Christina presented that 12 weeks seem to be the tipping point? No, I'm not surprised for a couple of reasons. One of them is that I'm not sure if the paper was adequately powered to find a difference between the less than six weeks um, and the greater than 12 weeks uh, groups. There were two groups in the middle there. And if you look at the graph and, and the results, uh, for each one of those categories in the middle, the slope of visual acuity trend over time was still more negative in those groups than in the less than six week period. So I don't think that somebody reading this should um, just skim through the abstract and think that it's okay to just intentionally extend the interval to 12 weeks. Uh, the other thing is that uh, the authors did not give us a reason why those patients were extended. And we know that there is a subset of patients who are gonna have some degree of fluid, no matter how many injections we give them, no matter how often. And surprisingly, these patients may actually have pretty good uh, vision preservation long-term. And this is a different kind of patient from the, the typical AMD patient who has you know, a, a subretinal hemorrhage, they can see an exam, you, get, you give them one or two injections, and then they get lost to follow up for three months. I think this latter and more typical patient is gonna have a much worse outcome. Right. Studies and studies, again, have shown the more injections, the better. And there have been some phase three studies that have looked at quarterly injections, such as the PEER study, and it just wasn't enough to produce the good vision outcomes that we get from monthly, every four week or every eight week anti-VEGF injections. So we talked um, a little bit offline about the fluid study. Who wants to tell a little bit about that study and how that might have related to some of the data in Christina's paper? So the fluid study sort of just top line was a study by Geimer and colleagues that was really interesting and thought provoking in my opinion. They looked at neovascular AMD patients and randomize them into two different groups. One group was called the relaxed group. And what that meant was that subretinal fluid up to 200 microns in center foveal thickness was tolerated in that group. And then the other group was the sort of conventional strict uh, type of approach um, where patients were not able to extend intervals if they had any presence of subretinal fluid. And what the authors were seeking to find and perhaps corroborate is some of the post hoc analyses that have shown us that perhaps some subretinal fluid, especially if it's not growing, if it's stable and the vision is also stable, may be tolerated and okay. Maybe we don't have to be chasing that so aggressively. And in that study, just really quickly top line, they found actually that the visual acuity changes were similar or comparable between the relaxed and the more conventionally strict type of group. And so, you know, it, there needs to be more investigation, I think, in this area. We don't know enough. There haven't been enough studies like that, but it was very um, thought-provoking because it is one of the few randomized prospective trials that we have looking at this question. And so, you know, and I'd be curious to hear what everyone does here. I, I have started to kind of be more open-minded about whether we need to treat every last drop of subretinal fluid. I think there's enough data that shows us that intraretinal fluid is probably pretty damaging and needs to be aggressively managed. But subretinal fluid, especially if a patient's vision has been stable for a while and they've been at that same interval, perhaps we can keep a patient without, you know, um, bringing them back as frequently for, for injections so long as they remain stable.
Well, it's a great question. Let's put it out to the panel. Ali, do you treat every little drop of fluid now or are you tolerating 200 microns of fluid like in the fluid study? Yeah, I don't know about 200 microns, but um, I think, you know, after I've gone through my normal, you know, monthly injections and then treat and extend, and uh, there are some patients that have just this tiny sliver of subretinal fluid that instead of going back to four weeks, you know, maybe I'll keep them at six as long as their vision is stable. And often I have that discussion with the patient. And most of them are more than happy to kind of stay at the extended interval if I think, uh, you know, their vision is stable and they're safe. So um, I am a little bit more tolerant of watching some subretinal fluid, particularly in wet AMD patients, um, you know, because of, you know, the fluid study and other post hoc analyses of say Harbor and some of the, the other uh, Renovizumab trial. So um, I'm not going overboard, uh, but you know, I think 200 microns is a lot, but um, I just kind of take a, a 3000 degree view of that OCT and then also um, where their vision is. And if they're okay with what I'm showing them on their pictures and um, their vision stable, I'm okay watching some. And Vlad, how are you um, dealing with fluid nowadays? So I would only tolerate fluid if I've tried pretty much all the available anti-VEGF agents, except maybe uh, rolocizumab given the safety concerns. Uh, and then another thing to try is potentially uh, doing a slightly higher dose. So maybe instead of uh, 0.05 ml, 0.07 ml. Um, I have heard of uh, some doctors who do a higher dose and get a little bit of a better response. Um, but if I've tried all three of these and I've tried multiple injections at monthly intervals and there's still some subretinal fluid, then I might be okay just extending the, the interval a little bit. Uh, there are also some patients like those who have an RPE rep, for example, where they're just going to have a lot of subretinal fluid uh, as the RPE heals and over many months. And so those are, are some patients where if their vision is stable, I may be uh, extending the interval a little sooner. Great comment. You know, I think we, we can get even more granular about subretinal fluid. Is it subretinal fluid over atrophy? Is it subretinal fluid over some macular neovascularization? I like to do an anti-VEGF challenge in my patients who have persistent subretinal fluid. I might give them an injection and see them within a week to see if they respond to try to figure out, is that fluid active? or is it just sort of old fluid that hasn't gone away because maybe the RPE isn't healthy? And um, I usually don't tolerate too much fluid, I will say, um, unless I just really can't get rid of it. Yeah, I agree, Caroline. And you know, one of the struggles I have with this whole concept of tolerating subretinal fluid is we don't quite understand how much is tolerable and after how long is tolerable, right? If, if you take it to the extreme and say that subretinal fluid is, is okay, then we wouldn't be treating anybody at all. And we know that's not true. We know that patients with fluid generally will have declines in visual acuity. So that, that's one of the struggles that I think we need to investigate and learn more about is what is the endpoint and, and how much fluid is actually okay. But I do think Dr. Geimer's study was excellent and it was so well done and very standardized, which uh, really gave us a lot of data. Yeah, agree. Great. So, well, this is Caroline Baumann. I wanna thank everybody for listening to New Retina Radio Journal Club with the VBS. I really wanna thank my panelists, Ali, Christina, and Vlad for uh, presenting these papers and this discussion, it was amazing. And um, I hope we get to talk again and talk about some more ideas and themes in retina. 